there really is an opportunity to, to come out of the pandemic with a kind of new shared prosperity uh, that will uh, really augur well for the future. Hello, and welcome to What Comes After, What Comes Next with me, James Shaw. This podcast explores the big ideas about how we tackle the climate crisis and renew our economies and our societies in a post-pandemic world. I'd love to hear your comments, thoughts, and suggestions. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Today I'm talking to Professor Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel laureate in economics and professor at Columbia University. Professor Stiglitz was chairman of President Bill Clinton's Council of Economic Advisers and served as senior vice president and chief economist of the World Bank. His latest book, People, Power and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent, explores the dangers of free market fundamentalism and offers some of the foundations of a progressive approach to economics. In the preface he writes, this is a time for major changes. Incrementalism, minor tweaks to our political and economic system, are inadequate to the tasks at hand. And that seemed like a good place to start our conversation. Professor, thank you for uh, joining me uh, today. That does seem prescient, um, although you obviously wrote it before the COVID pandemic, and I think you were probably talking about other things. Can you say what it was you were talking about? Well, I was talking at the moment about the climate crisis, the inequality crisis, uh, uh, two of the crises that the United States faced, but we're facing countries all over the world. And uh, I was trying to argue we needed a very big change in our economic uh, system, a transformation, uh, and uh, that wasn't happening. It it does, of course, seem to be happening now, although involuntarily and probably not in ways that we would have wanted, and certainly not in ways that are easy for us to control or to manage. That's right. I mean, obviously, in response to COVID-19, there's been uh, large shutdowns, shutdowns of large parts of the economy. Uh, that will have uh, reverberations uh, uh, both on the demand side, balance sheets of households uh, and firms will be devastated, but also on the supply side, there'll be a lot of firms going bankrupt. Uh, what worries me is that even though we've poured literally trillions of dollars in the case of the American economy, uh, we poured trillions of dollars we did it without any vision of what kind of economy and what kind of a society we want when we emerge from the pandemic. So never has government outside of war intervene in the structure of the economy to the extent it is. It is making life and death decisions. It's deciding this firm will live and this firm will die. But it's doing that without any sense about where we want to go. Let me just give you one example that, uh, again, I'm, I apologize for drawing it from the United States, but it's clear we do things uh, in a more extreme way. So it, it, it illustrates, it's good uh, textbook illustration. Um, 
we uh, gave billions and billions of dollars to our airline industry without any conditions about their transforming themselves into a greener industry, uh, you know, more fuel efficient. Uh, it's going to be one of the hard areas to make it fully uh, uh, carbon neutral, but they can be much more carbon neutral than they've been. We didn't put any conditions on them. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one of the sectors that we need for the future as we move into a knowledge economy is support for our universities, our colleges, and especially our research universities. Almost no money. And they are facing life and death uh, decisions. Endowments are down, student revenues are down, state tax revenues are down. So they're facing an existential moment. And no help is being offered. And this is the direction that we ought to be directing our economy and our society. Can I ask, I mean, how much of that is simply a function of time? So I know, you know, as someone who's in government, uh, the speed at which we have had to deploy, in our case, not trillions, but tens of billions, which, you know, for us is big money, uh, uh, is, you know, has happened at such speed that the kind of policy development process, uh, you know, it's obviously very compressed and, and, um, you, you know, we know that there are, that you know individuals and families need support immediately. Um, small businesses, particularly, uh, you know, most of whom in New Zealand operate um, often with little more than a week or a month's worth of cash um, on their balance. Uh, you know, and and actually, <laughs> some of our larger businesses are not are not much different. Uh, that we need to move that very very quickly into the economy, and and so, do you think that it's too late, you know. Are we? Are we? Have we sort of missed the boat, or are we able to sort of start applying some of the levers that you're talking about now? So first, let me say, you know, some of the problems are because things had to go very rapidly, but that's not a full explanation. Uh, you know, I was privy to some of the discussions that were going on uh, in Congress uh, about shaping the bill, and there were people who had. Uh, better ideas. I won't say perfect ideas. Uh, for instance, uh, I was very concerned that the way we were designing the program for small businesses and that was intended to keep workers connected with their firms wouldn't work. That money would go to the richer firms, the bigger, the firms that were connected with banks because we were using the banks as the intermediaries uh, that uh, I had argued that Denmark had come up with a good alternative and several of the other European countries. So there were models that we could have drawn upon that would have worked. So I regrettably, it was partly a political choice that, uh, <laughs> Those Republicans wanted money to be funneled through the banks. I think they wanted money to go to more of their friends. They did not want money to go to the states, even though they were on the front line of providing health care services. They fought against money for the hospitals and for testing. So some of these things are almost unbelievable, but we 
we're seeing the results. This increase is 30 million in the numbers of unemployed. The failure, just to give you one more example, you know, I viewed uh, that number one in our priority should be health. That we didn't want sick workers going to work. And you probably know in the United States, we do not have mandatory sick leave. Congress recognized the problem as, as in New Zealand, a very large fraction of people live paycheck to paycheck. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you have no sick leave, you're going to go to work and spread the disease. So it was a matter of humanitarianism, but it was also a matter of our self-interest. Congress did pass a mandatory sick leave. But then under the lobbying of the big companies, the Republicans insisted on an exemption of 80% of our workers, 80%. And 30% of those at the bottom, the frontline workers, our delivery, the people who come in contact, have no, no sick leave at all. So this has played an important role in the spread of the disease. So I wish it were just the rush <laughs> that can explain it, but I think there was some malice as well. And you know politics better than I, but let me answer the second part of your question. Is it too late? Unfortunately, the answer to that is in America, the disease is going to go on for a long time. So for us, we are going to have to be thinking about what to do next. The whole program was designed under the hypothesis it was going to be a 10-week, 10-week interruption. And we give it a little dose of loving care, and then the economy picks up with a V-shaped recovery from where it left off. That was a fantasy. And now we know it is a fantasy. And so there's going to have to be a lot more assistance. The problem is that the United States deficit this year looks like it's going to be just announced uh, yesterday four and a half trillion dollars and that's probably a little bit optimistic so that's what happens when you don't think very carefully about how you're spending money we are going to have to have some more assistance otherwise we're going to go into a a deep deep recession and uh I think that we do have an opportunity to change the structure of our programs to both protect our health and protect the most vulnerable and then set up the conditions for a strong recovery. Wait, just out of curiosity, what is four and a half trillion as a percentage of US GDP? Um, we have a GDP of uh, about 21 trillion before the crisis. It's, it's going down rapidly. So uh, we're talking about uh, uh, about 18% of GDP. The GDP ratio is going to be well over, will be over 100% under the optimistic scenarios. Right. So that definitely does constrain future governments' ability well, we to- we worry about that. We certainly worry about, and it, 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 you know, when you go to war, you don't ask the question, can we afford it? You figure out how to afford it. And if you're going into a, depression. You don't say, can we afford it? People are starving in the streets. You can't say, can we afford it? But unfortunately, uh, it is constraining 
some of the politics and uh, it worries me you know we are having a discussion right now about whether we should automatically extend our unemployment provisions because we have a very weak unemployment system uh so long as the unemployment rate remains so high and so long as the pandemic continues it seems to me that's a no-brainer but uh politically it looks like it's contentious yeah i mean i've seen these extraordinary graphs from the u.s uh with, of unemployment, it's not even a hockey stick curve. It's just an L-shaped or a reverse L-shaped curve of quite low unemployment, actually, um, for a very long period of time, many, many years, and then just a vertical spike in, in the last few weeks, actually. Um, and, and we are certainly experiencing uh, a very steep upward curve. Um, and we've got many multiples more unemployed now than we did only two months ago. Um, but it's a different shape. And one of the things, you know, when I get the weekly treasury reports and sort of look through them is what, why the difference? That, that's what, what I, you know, why is it such a sharp line? Uh, and, and yes, ours is definitely going up, but, but it, it's slightly more gradiated. And, and I, I can't understand why, why there would be much of a difference there. Well, part of the reason uh, that there's such a difference is that we did not put in place uh, the kinds of programs that would have encouraged employers to keep their workers that Denmark and many other countries did. You know, what they did is to say the best way of channeling money to individuals who otherwise would be unemployed is give money to the employer for him, compensate him for keeping the person on the payroll and a very simple principle we'll pay the proportion of your revenues uh, that have gone down so we won't pay if, if your revenues stay up we don't pay it but if your revenues go down to zero we'll pay the whole cost so or 80 percent something and 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 uh, a certain degree of social solidarity employers don't want to lose workers they put a lot of investment in training workers so uh, that was the kind of model that was used in many countries. We didn't do it, uh, at, uh, and the PPP program for through small business was supposed to do it, but it did it late. It did it in a very random way. Money didn't go to the companies that needed it most, and the way it was designed. This is very interesting about trust in government. It was designed so that there would be forgiveness. You took out a loan, but if you followed the stipulations of the loan, including keeping your workers, it would be forgiven. Unfortunately, trust in the Trump government is not very high. And so what a lot of small business people I hear uh, said, you know, we're not going to be forgiven uh, this. This is not a grant. Uh, there's, they're going to find some picayune reason not to give us money. You know, if you're a big guy, it's one thing, but if you're a little guy, they're going to go after you. And so it just, uh, it really shows you how important trust in government is in addressing the pandemic. Well, we, it's interesting. You've you almost exactly word for word described our own scheme over here. So we had a wage subsidy scheme paid to employers to keep uh, people on, they had to demonstrate 
that they were 30% of revenues below same time last year. Um, and they had to promise that they would keep the employees on at at least 80% of their salary and, and then, you know, put it through. But the reverse uh, situation, of course, is that is that there's quite a lot of people who would have been receiving that who maybe didn't need it. And so there's been some criticism of the scheme that, you know, various companies have applied for it. And because we had to set it up quickly and we had to get the cash into the economy quickly, you know, you, you don't have time really to put in huge sort of complex bureaucratic systems that might sort of weed out the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. But uh, one of the lessons that we learned from the Christchurch earthquake rebuild when we did a similar thing about 10 years ago was uh, we said that we would publish the companies uh, who had received it because we did notice after the Christchurch earthquake that there were companies that took the wage subsidy, banked it, um, and then let their workers go anyway. Um, and and there didn't seem to be m many other ways that you could safeguard against that kind of behaviour other than sort of transparency and disclosing, you know, which companies were, were receiving it and which weren't. Well, when when we went began the program uh, discussions over that, my feeling was very much uh, as yours. Uh, urgency uh, was at the fore, and you know we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, we had to get something in place. Uh, but what I argued is, uh, you know, we have all the data on firm profits, firm revenue. Uh, the, the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service of the United States, really has very good records on employment. Uh, you have to file Social Security. So we have all the records so that, in fact, of course, in the moment of the urgency, uh, some people, there might be, some, you know, intentional or unintentional mistakes. That's just life. But the more important is to get the money out. And then afterwards, we'll go through and clean up the books. And everybody understands the rules of the game. As long as the rules of the game are transparent and clear, then, uh, and I think what you did is very important, transparency. One of the big controversies in the United States, again, believe it or not, is that the Democrats had to fight to get an inspector general and congressional oversight of the money. And when the president signed the bill, he said he is not going to respect this part of the bill. Uh, you know, it, to, to us, this transparency is a hallmark of democracy. That does seem uh, extraordinary. Uh, can I just return to something that you were saying earlier about um, uh, you know, how you, you were concerned that stimulus money was essentially going to uh, people who already have money, essentially, um, and not going to places where it's needed, either in terms of small business or unemployed people or or healthcare. And I, I want to flip back to um, the response to the um, great financial crisis. So, you know, roughly 10 years ago, so within living memory, um, and there's a lot of criticism that the uh, way that that stimulus package was deployed um, didn't get to where it needed to get to, um, but did create this uh, massive overvaluation of assets, this, this big asset bubble. And um, I think that there are some people, you know, I get quite a lot of correspondence uh, 
you know, even under business as usual, but you can imagine what it's been like recently. Um, and because uh, I'm, I'm the Minister for Climate Change, but I'm also an Associate Finance Minister. So I'm, I sort of get quite a lot of correspondence about, you know, how, how we're managing the books and the, the nature of the recovery and so on as well. And so I'm just sort of interested in um, something that you said about two approaches to providing help. One is top down and the other is bottom up. Um, and 2008 governments threw money uh, largely at banks, but then it was a financial systems crisis um, as opposed to a pandemic in the kind of real productive economy. And and there was this kind of hope that citizens would have eventually benefit, and that doesn't seem to have been the pattern. Can you say what's different this time or what we should do differently this time? I mean, you're absolutely right. What we tried, what I call trickle-down economics, throw enough money at the banks and would help. Uh, it did save the banks. But actually, there's an important point uh, here that I emphasize. We could have saved the banks without saving the bankers and their shareholders and their bondholders. And we wanted to distinguish saving organizations from saving the particular people or particular owners of those corporations. We want to save jobs. We want to save the productive capacity. And that's very different from saving the people who make some very big mistakes by, for instance, not having enough capital buffers. Well, in this particular crisis, there, this is a crisis that is throughout the economy. Uh, it, 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 you might say it began uh, most virulently in people not wanting to go to restaurants. Uh, it, it's throughout uh, our, our economy. They don't want to consume in the presence of others, and they want to produce in the presence of others. And that uh, obviously... Uh, is uh, totally destructive of the economy. So the question is how to rebuild the economy. And uh, this goes to the point that you made before that so large a fraction of our citizens have uh, no savings account uh, or very little. And if they have to draw on those meager savings account to survive, when we emerge from this crisis, they're going to be in debt. They're not going to be able to consume. The engine of economic growth is, will be, have been destroyed. So one of the arguments is an essential part of the recovery is the protection of the big middle class, ordinary individuals, families who, other, who are unemployed. So let's focus on, you know, 70% in the United States of, of all GDP is consumption. That's related to people in the middle, the people at the bottom. Let's begin there in the middle and the bottom. And if they're buying, the companies will be fine. So that's why I think you, you, one wants to begin there. Uh, there are small businesses that struggle to get created and, and, so easy to so fragile and so that's an area why i supported the that money going to small businesses but not in the erratic way that it was done uh in the united states i mean you, you we had to have some way of protecting them and we know that they're fragile and will lose in some cases um but what is worrisome 
is we are actually giving hundreds of billions of dollars to big corporations who should be able to take care of themselves. Remember, uh, we gave them a multi-trillion dollar tax cut in December of 2017. And they could have used that to build up their capital buffers to, to protect themselves against the shock. They didn't. In one year alone, our big corporations bought back almost a trillion dollars of shares. So that would have put them in a very good stance for protecting themselves against the shock. So uh, uh, my view is it's the smaller firms, medium-sized firms that we need to protect, uh, the bigger firms. If we help them, we should do it with uh, ways that we get some of the upside. We'll get warrants, we'll get uh, equity, so that when the economy recovers, uh, we'll get a return for the risk that we've borne. I'd love to come back to that, but I, I just wanted to um, pick up on something that you were just saying about how you think that uh, you, you need to sort of support the middle and lower income households. Um, and, you know, that's essentially demand side, uh, you know, trying to create some demand side action. Um, are you talking about helicopter money? And for the benefit of people who don't haven't heard the phrase helicopter money before, what is it? <laughs> well, so uh, uh, helicopter money is the idea that the central bank just spreads dollars, gives dollars out. Uh, uh, like it or not, uh, we effectively did helicopter money in 2009. Uh, the balance sheet of the Fed went from $800 billion to about $4 trillion. And now we're doing another even bigger dose of helicopter money. But the helicopter money is falling in the la uh, laps of our big corporations. So, uh, uh, and we're helping to finance, obviously, this four and a half trillion dollar government uh, deficit. So uh, the, the answer is we're already engaged in that uh, uh, in one way or another. It's an indirect way. Uh, the government borrows the money from the Fed, uh, from the market, but the market gets the money from the Fed. So it's basically the Fed is giving the, the government the money to pay for unemployment for uh, the $1,200 check. So it's quantitative easing. Well, it's more than that because it's, it's, it, it, it's uh, all these things, uh, it's grants to individuals, this $1,200, it's supporting the unemployment insurance system, but uh, it's these loans to companies at very low interest rates and some of those loans will be forgivable. So a little bit of a difference here between in some cases it's loans in some cases, it's just a grant. Now, one of the problems is there's not been a lot of transparency. Uh, and so, and there's a massive uh, activity, so it's very hard to parse what information uh, there is. But one example of uh, an exa uh, area of concern is that a lot of corporations 
had borrowed so much that they were in junk bond territory. Um, a lot of the private equity companies whose business model is to take over somebody uh, and then load it with debt and let it go bankrupt. Uh, they are, uh, there is a new program where they, the Fed says it will effectively be buying this debt, supporting the junk bond market. You know, historically, central banks buy high quality paper, T-bill rates, government bonds. This is, in, in, in the Euro crisis, they bought uh, bonds from the biggest companies. And there were some concerns about the discrimination between big companies and smaller companies. And that that was unfair, that, that the central bank was distorting the economy because it was only buying the big banks. But here in the United States, we've said we're going to not only support the big companies, we're even going to support the big companies that were engaged in junk bonds. Uh, that is that is a new level of anxiety in the role. I was talking about the role of the government now in restructuring the economy, moving the economy in certain directions. It shouldn't be encouraging that kind of junk bonds. It should be encouraging investments in climate, uh, in, in, in a knowledge economy. You know, that should be the priority. But as I said before, the real problem is we went into uh, the rescue without any vision of what kind of economy we wanted to see at the other side. So are you a fan of, uh, say, you know, just giving a, a cash grant to middle and low income families to stimulate demand? In the current circumstances, I think I am. You know, I've not been a big supporter of uh, what's called universal basic income, UBI, uh, because what people really want is a job. Our first commitment is should be to provide employment to everybody who wants a job and able. Uh, we have so much that needs to be done, uh, transforming our economy to a green economy, uh, building infrastructure, uh, closing the inequality gap, uh, which, you know, in all our countries is large. Uh, there, there's a lot of meaningful work that needs to be done, but it's not being done. And so to me, the goal should be uh, making sure that we structure our economy so we create those jobs. But right now, because of COVID-19 in the United States, at least, we can't create those jobs because people don't want to get uh, near each other. Uh, you're a little bit ahead of us, or more than a little bit, in being able to, to bring the pandemic under control. We're actually having a debate right now about how to direct stimulus spending. So the supply side, obviously, uh, as well as the demand side. And we know that we've got a historical underinvestment in our three waters infrastructure and actually freshwater uh, in housing and transport and uh, energy. I mean, you name it, there are kind of gaps, you know, our schools and hospitals, even our defense estate, you know, have been even minimum maintenance hasn't been done for a very long time. And we've also had a pretty steep population increase. So our population has gone from 4 million to 5 million 
in um, under tw- in about 15 years. So, and you know, we we just haven't kept pace with with the kind of growth in the population. So there are areas where we had problems, multi-billion dollar problems that we're going to have to be dealt with anyway. Uh, and of course, we are about to spend tens of billions of dollars as well. And so, you know, it does seem to make sense to dovetail those things. Uh, in fact, it also doesn't, to my mind, make sense not to dovetail those things because we were going to have to pay for them anyway. So if we use the stimulus money on something else, then we won't have it available to fix those longer term problems. No, you're precisely right. I mean, that's why I think it, if people can go to work, which they can't right now in the United States, the the priority should be uh, let's make the investments, let's create the jobs, let's make the investments, and out of this we'll we'll emerge a stronger economy. Uh, that's the direction that I'd like uh, uh, United States to go. What, one of the counter arguments that I see in the media here, though, uh, is that um, that's government picking winners, um, and governments historically including ours, have been pretty bad at picking winners. And shouldn't we just do something in the kind of frame framework of the economy, like cutting tax rates or something like that, to allow activity to emerge wherever it emerges, rather than government saying, oh, we're going to stick our money into, you know, underground water pipes than into something else? So first, the argument that the government isn't very good at picking winners is just wrong. Uh, the re, uh, when I was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, we did a study of the returns in public investment in technology and infrastructure, uh, uh, industrial policies. Our returns were so much higher than the private sector. It was hard to believe. Uh, you know, the private sector is imperfect. Anybody looking at America's investment in housing uh, in before 2008 will say, what a lousy uh, investment machine America had. But overall, uh, when you look, you know, sure, government makes mistakes, the private sector makes mistakes. Let's look at the average return, unambiguously higher for the government. And if you think about just one of our investments, uh, the internet, uh, we wouldn't be here within our conversation without those government investments in technology. I mean, that have paid off for everybody. Uh, so uh, I think that's all basically ideology that government can't pick winners. Uh, people make mistakes. If you have a good transparent discussion, you get expertise in, uh, you get the best minds to think about where the direction of our society, uh, you can get good decisions. Uh, now. The second point is every society needs an infrastructure. Uh, you, you, you need roads, you, you need sewage pipes. Uh, you know, there are basic things that we need for a society to function. Uh, and you don't want the market to leave it to the market. It may do it in some cases, but not in the other. So, uh, the, the fact is that in one way or another, society is making choices all the time. You decide what kind of an education system. You want to have a 19th century education system or 21st century education system. Uh, you know, 
Uh, and when you make that decision, you're making bets on what the future is going to look like. Uh, you're betting that we're going to be a more digital economy. We're going to be more of a knowledge economy. So like it or not, you have to make those uh, decisions. Now, finally, uh, you have to intervene because we, like it or not, impose costs on others. Climate change is an example. If You can't just let people pollute because that will destroy our environment. And the pandemic is another illustration of an externality. Uh, the social cost of somebody spreading the disease is very large. And so you have to have a government action. You don't just want to leave it to the free market. So the markets, that title of my book was Progressive Capitalism, very much capitalism, markets are core, but they can't be unfettered. They have to be regulated and they have to be complemented by government investments in technology, basic research, infrastructure, education, um, you know, the fiber that makes our societies function. You've referenced a couple of times uh, the need to invest in the green economy um, and decarbonizing the economy and that that's one of the choices that we've got in front of us at the moment. And I know that, again, that's a very live conversation here in New Zealand is how how do we direct that investment in, in ways that kind of suit the long term uh, rather than just our, our short term needs. And uh, you said, um, I think it was in The Guardian uh, last year, uh, so before the pandemic crisis, um, that efforts to avert a climate crisis would be good for the economy and the transition to the green economy would likely usher in a new boom. Um, and I'm interested in that because um, one of the arguments that we get into here in New Zealand is people say, well, look, we can't afford this transition. You know, this is going to impose extra costs on households. It's going to cost us X percent of GDP growth over the next 30 years, um, you know, that that kind of thing. And so, you know, it's the status quo argument. And, and I'm, I'm curious that you think that it's the reverse of that. Yeah, I, I chaired an international commission with uh, Nick Stern, Lord Stern, and uh, a whole group of experts. And we, we asked two questions. Uh, what would it necessitate to get to the one half, two degrees centigrade that is part of the Paris and Copenhagen agreements? And uh, what would be the impact? You know, how do we get there? And uh, what would be the impact? And we believe uh, very strongly that we have to take stronger actions than we're taking now. That's uh, almost uh, obvious, but that it would not actually be that big of a deal uh, if we did it in the right way. It would be actually smaller than the kind of fluctuations we get in the price of oil, uh, you know, uh, in the 1970s, uh, the oil, there were oil price shocks that went up way up. Uh, now it went way down. Uh, the, the fact is the vagaries of the oil price puts a greater strain on the economy than just moving to a green transition would impose. So we can easily afford it. And we made the further point, as, as you said in the Guardian, uh, I mentioned in the Guardian article, that it's going to stimulate uh, innovation 
uh, it's going to encourage people to make new investments. And uh, whenever you do that, our experience has been, it, 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 it leads to uh, a new round of prosperity. And, uh, you know, the last big episode of that World War II, where we, we did a lot of innovation to fight the war. And then afterwards, we had this tremendous burst of economic energy. And uh, that will happen, I, I believe, very firmly if, if we go towards the green transition. Can you? Uh, there's actually been a number of people who have referred to the war economy um, as as a parallel, both because the scale of the threat that we are facing from climate change, you know, has sort of an equivalence terms and you know effects on, you know, public health and people's lives and livelihoods and you know the potential for communities and cities actually to to be destroyed as a result of the effects of climate change. So the the kind of the counterfactual if we if we don't fix it. But in, in a, the war economy was a hugely command and control economy. There's this sort of apocryphal story from the US uh, when the US was gearing up to enter the war and worked out how many aeroplanes it needed. Um, and there weren't a lot of people building, you know, aircraft in the US uh, in, in the late 30s and 40s. And and they said, they basically went to Detroit to the car manufacturers and said, you know, how many airplanes have you built? And I think the answer was 30 or something like that. And they said, great, but like 300,000 by next year or within six months or something just sort of astonishing. Um, and, and it happened. Uh, but that, that, that does, you know, that, that's kind of not the way that the peacetime economy works. And, and, and if you're looking at the transition, I mean, obviously we're in a, a very different state right now. And I'd be interested to explore that. But you know, if you if you're sort of thinking about a sustained course of action over the next ten to thirty years to decarbonize the economy at the scale that you're talking about, like the parallel being the wartime economy, but it is functionally a peacetime economy, how do you bring those two things together? Well, as I said, I think the key ingredient here is the observation is e even though it's a very different from business as usual, what we've been doing it's not that much of a stretch. So what I believe is there are a couple, there are three things that we have to do. We do need a carbon price, you know, a price, we're treating something that scares our atmosphere as if it's a, a free good. And we have to price destroying that atmosphere, adding carbon to that atmosphere. Uh, we, we said that by, 2030, it ought to be in the range of 80 to $100 euros a, a ton. I, you know, uh, that's, there are countries that already have that kind of a carbon price. They're doing fine. So uh, drive a little bit less, uh, you'll use a little smaller car, there'll be more efficient engines. You, you, you probably, you won't notice it that much. Uh, the second thing is regulations. Uh, not allowing uh, coal-fired furnaces, not complicated regulation, not complicated to enforce, to implement, uh, a lot of things along that line. Often those regulations stimulate a lot of investment. You know, the, the green light bulbs, uh, enormous saving of dollars of, 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 uh, of energy. It, it just took a little bit of a push to get those green light bulbs. and. We're saving money. 
to expend on other things. So the regulations are the second piece. And the third is government investment. We need, uh, you know, this is not maybe a key issue in, in, in uh, New Zealand, but in the United States, we need much more of a public transportation system. Uh, you know, we, we ought to have a good first-rate railroad linking our East Coast, uh, actually linking the whole country together within our cities. Uh, they're clogged. Uh, if we had public transportation, it would save time. It would save money. People would be better off than gridlocked in their cars. So little things, I think, actually would improve standards of living. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, a lot of companies will join in to try to make a, a greener economy. I can tell you from the younger people, they want to participate in this green transition. You know, you hear over and over again, they don't want to work for a dirty company. Uh, they want to make, work for a company who's making a contribution to our society. And an important contribution in their mind is making our economy a greener economy. Joe, that's a, um, a lovely uh, note. Um, and and uh, I've taken up quite a lot of your time, so it's probably about time to draw it to a close. But I, I guess you've had conversations with uh at at least our current prime minister and and probably previous uh, prime ministers of new zealand um and uh i'm going to assume that you know you know a reasonable amount um about the sort of shape of the economy in new zealand society given where things are at right now and what you've said is there something that you'd like to say to new zealanders at large about where we go from here? Well, there are a couple of things I guess I would say, and, and, and I'm saying this partly because uh, living in America, uh, we, we're going through a trauma. And one has to recognize, uh, recognize that. Uh, I think uh, the first thing is the importance of uh, 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 a modicum of social solidarity. Um, the polarization that's marked the United States is really destroy, destroying of the country. So one of the great things about New Zealand, as I've seen it, is, is the civility, the solidarity that I've seen. Uh, the second thing is uh, one of the things that I've been so impressed about New Zealand in, in governments, and this has gone through Again, you might say uh, very, very different governments. The focus on well-being. Your government is really focused on it, but recognizing that GDP is not a measure of well-being. Uh, you have to go about beyond that. You have to look about deprivations of of some of your groups, the inequalities, uh, sustainability. Um, that really important to go beyond that narrow focus on materialism and on GDP to a broader societal view. And I think New Zealand really has done that better than any other country. And it's, it's been a leader in what's been called the well-being well alliance. And I think it's really important that people focus on the well-being of the citizens in a, in a very, very broad way, including the issues of uh, climate change uh, that that we've just uh, 
been discussing. And I guess the third is the central, uh, one of the central lessons of this crisis is the importance of science, the importance of expertise. Listening to science, listening to expert, those countries that did that have done a lot better than the United States, which didn't pay sufficient attention uh, to science and expertise. And then finally, the main theme of my book, uh, People, Power, and Profits, you have to get the balance between the government, the market, civil society, right. And for the last 40 years, that's been out of balance. This is an opportunity to get it back into balance. And I think if you do that, there really is an opportunity to, to come out of the pandemic with a kind of new shared prosperity uh, that will uh, really augur well for the future. Professor Joseph Stiglitz, thank you so much for your time. Uh, you've been very generous with you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you to Professor Joseph Stiglitz for joining me today. And thank you to you also for listening. Feel free to get in touch with me at any time. My email address again, james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next week, I'll be talking to Christiana Figueres, one of the world's leading thinkers on climate change. I'll see you then. This podcast is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.